Hello and welcome to the next episode of our podcast on negotiation. And uh, today we're going to talk about mergers and acquisitions. Uh, we have uh, Bill Snow with us, who is an M&A expert uh, with over 30 years of experience and probably hundreds of millions of dollars in transactional volume um, in his backpack. Uh, and Bill will tell us a little bit about uh, about uh, how to negotiate M&A transactions, uh, about what mistakes to avoid, what works and what doesn't, uh, and many, many, many other things. Bill, it's great to have you with us. Remy, thank you for having me. This is a real treat. Uh, so, Bill, um, why don't you tell us uh, a few uh, a few words about yourselves, uh, a little bit about your background, uh, uh, so that our viewers uh, get a better picture of how much expertise is present in our call. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I appreciate that. So I am a middle market investment banker. So what does that mean? Middle market, let's define that. We define that broadly in terms of revenue. So here in the US, revenues of roughly 20 million up to $300 million, probably similar in terms of Euro, given the exchange rate. I investment banker, that's a funny term. I do nothing with investments and we're not a bank. So we call ourselves investment bankers. Why? It's a fancy term. All it means, all it means is I sell companies or I help companies acquire companies. So when there's some sort of transaction or maybe raise money for companies, some sort of transaction that changes the ownership of a company, that's when people like me will get involved and handle that transaction. Awesome. How many transactions have you conducted in your career, Bill? Oh, probably over 100. Kind of lost, wow. lost track here along the way. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, that's a lot. So, um, and let's move on. Let's dive deeper into mergers and acquisitions. Um, I think we all have a, an intuition what that is, what that means. Uh, but it would be great to hear to hear about it from you, uh, Bill. If you were to, you know, define it for dummies, yes, for uh, for people who are not investment bankers who have nothing to do with M and A transactions, what are we talking about here? Sure. M&A, mergers and acquisitions. Again, it's a very fancy term. It sounds like we know what we're doing. That just means you're selling a company. So M&A, uh, we, by the way, in this business, we we love acronyms, M&A, EBITDA, if you're familiar with that accounting term. We love acronyms. We love ampersands in it. So M&A, put the ampersand in there. If you could put an ampersand in EBITDA, we'd like it even better. So what does that mean? Mergers and acquisitions generally means the transfer of ownership from one party to another. So a business owner selling his or her company to somebody else, somebody or a company acquiring a company or a, a company selling off, divesting a unit or a, a wholly owned subsidiary, something like that. Something that goes on where the ownership of a company changes hands. That's what M&A broadly means. Well, that sounds uh, simple for the uh, for the sophistication uh, for the sophistication of the top of the subject matter that we're talking about today, and uh, probably we all expect since this is a podcast on negotiation, right? That one of the main issues uh, uh, that are negotiated in the context of uh, mergers and acquisitions is probably the valuation. Right? And uh, if that's the, first of all, is that the case, Bill? And second, uh, what does it depend on? Sure, sure. Well, that's a great question. It usually boils down to that. And valuation is a little more complicated thing than just number. Well, first of all, the formula for valuation, if your viewers want to write this down, this is a very, very complicated mathematical formula that I will share. So valuation is, write this down, get ready. It's a very complicated mathematical formula that largely depends upon what side I'm representing. 
So um, it's a little bit of a joke. I'm being facetious there. But in terms of negotiating the value of a business, it really starts with the other side. So if you're selling, you want the buyer, the prospective buyers to come back to you with what their thoughts are on the valuation. And why is that? Well, you don't want to say, well, we think this company is worth 30 million euros. And what if somebody is willing to pay 35 or 40? Well, you've just left money on the table. So ideally, you want the other side to make that that first uh, offer in terms of the, the, the valuation. And along with that, buyers are going to look at, of course, the earnings of the business, uh, the, the prospects of the business. Are these earnings going to continue? Is it a, a one-time or a short-term blip where the earnings have, have gone up? Uh, does the company have any concentrations? So does that mean that uh, one customer or a small number of customers it is it comprises a large number. So if you've got one comp, one customer that comprises 50% of the sales, you can imagine if that one customer fires the company, that can materially impact the business. The same thing with vendors. So if a company has a limited number of vendors, a company that has one vendor where it buys its product from, that's a risk too, because if something happens to that vendor, the, the whole business goes kaput. So you look at things like that, uh, you look at the the management team. Well, who's going to run the business? Does the owner want to stay? Does that owner want to retire and leave? Does that owner plan to stay at least for a transition? Uh, are we, the buyers, going to have to put a new president or a new executive team into place? And maybe that makes sense because some, some people say, well, we want to buy companies. We have all the back office, all the management. We just need to make sure that we've got the salespeople and the operations people and, and admin and so forth to run the business. So you look at all of those sort of things. The buyers look at all of those sort of things when coming up with the, the valuation. Uh, competition, when you're a seller, competition or the semblance of competition is a big part of what can help the valuation. So if you've got a, uh, a company and you're going to market, you hire an investment banking firm, they're going to reach out to multiple buyers, dozens, maybe 100, 150 buyers, and you're going to get multiple offers. And so what does that signal to the buyers, the acquirers of these companies? Well, this investment banker is contacting me. We're probably not the only firm that this banker is contacting. So we have competition and boy, oh boy, this this company is, we've been chasing this or we've been thinking about acquiring this or it has a real nice product offering and it plugs a hole in our product offering. Boy, oh boy, we really need to make this acquisition. So we call that the strategic imperative. We can find a buyer who has a strategic imperative to buy the company. You'll quite often see that strategic imperative uh, communicated in terms of a very strong valuation for the company. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like um, evaluation is a, is a function of multiple variables. Um, and uh, uh, if that's the case, um, how do you guys create value within those transactions? So is it a more of a win-lose type of a Craigslist negotiation of a used car? Yeah. Or is it uh, is it something where uh, the buyers and the sellers look jointly for options and possibilities to create value for each other? What's yeah. your experience? Well, something is worth only what somebody else is willing to pay. Okay. And so somebody might have an idea that their company is worth $100 million. But if the buyers are only bidding 10 million, 11, 12 million dollars. What does that tell you? That the buyers, the people writing the checks, do not agree. And maybe they just agree to, to disagree. So something is worth only what somebody else is willing to pay. Investment bankers, sometimes uh, we get hired and, and, and the executives, the owners of the, of the company who are selling the company, view us 
as I call it magic words that, that they think we have some sort of magic ability to whisper something in a buyer's ear and get them to drastically increase their price. Nobody has that ability. I don't have that ability. And if you ever are looking to hire somebody like me, and if they're making comments to that extent, they do not have that ability. The, the investment banker is only as good as the underlying asset being sold. Okay. And then on top of that, you have the tenor of the times. Are, is the economy flying and, and really hot? Are interest rates low? Does that make getting money uh, easier? Uh, is the buyer really uh, motivated to make this acquisition? Are they highly motivated to make this? In other words, is this acquisition a must-have as opposed to a nice-to-have? The seller, is the seller desperate to get rid of the business? Well, if you have a company where the owner is desperate to sell, what's that going to do? That tends to put downward pressure on the price of the business. So all these things get factored into the valuation, including the skill of the investment banker. And to that extent, the skill of the investment banker is putting together quality materials, making sure a buyer's list uh, is, is a strong list. All the prospective acquirers are contacted, and then it boils down to the ability to negotiate. That is, in my opinion, the most important skill of the investment banker. And people always ask me, well, how do you determine if you've got an investment banker who's good at negotiating? It's a very simple thing. Ask for a fee proposal, look at what they're going to charge you to sell their business, and then cut their fees to the bone and say, I'll work on this basis. If your investment banker says, great, I'll take the deal, do not hire that person. The way they negotiate with you is how they will negotiate for you. And a lot of people don't realize that. It's not to say you should overspend, but uh, penny wise, pound foolish. So you can save a couple a couple dollars uh, by hiring somebody who's willing to do the work for less money. Well, what does that mean? Things like a working capital adjustment, that's going to be a big part of the deal. It's really boring accounting stuff. You don't want to deal with that. But it's a very important thing. And if that target, that working capital target is not set correctly, the seller of a business, that could cost a seller hundreds of thousands of dollars or euros or maybe millions if it's a large deal, millions of dollars, millions of euros, if that was not negotiated correctly. And to negotiate that, you have to understand accounting, you have to understand the business, and you have to be able to explain and uh, tell a buyer, here's what we're thinking and have those discussions. You can't pound the table. You can't say, take it or leave it. Uh, you can't say, here's a line in the sand. Um, we're we're going to walk away unless you accept. If you say things like that, you can do that. It's a foolish thing to do. Be prepared for the other side to walk away. So I, away. I do not. Yeah. And so when I negotiate, if, if somebody says they do the, the figurative line in the sand, I'm going to step right over it. I'll call their bluff. So do not bluff unless you're prepared to have somebody call your bluff. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds uh, very convincing, Bill. Um, uh, but so far we focused uh, we focused on something which we call substantive um, outcomes, right? So valuation prices, the determinants of valuation, and so on. Um, in negotiation negotiation theory and negotiation analysis, uh, the second type of an outcome is the relational outcome. So, sure. what is your experience? Does trust, relationship building, does it matter in M and A transactions, or do you would you say it's purely, purely a subject matter. That was a heck of a segue. That was really amazing. That, that you, you should think about maybe teaching this as a college professor. That was really well done. I like that. Uh, yeah. So of course, trust and honesty 
is is extremely important. You want to do what you say you're going to do. So if you're going to if you say we'll do X Y Z, make sure you follow up and do it. Uh, we call that when people who don't do that or, or change the terms, we call that negotiating in bad faith. You've probably heard that term, uh, and if not, you you should and make sure that you're you're teaching your students that do not negotiate in bad faith because that will scuttle the ability to get a deal done. So if you agree, if you have a conversation with somebody and, and one side says something and then that other side reneges on that, wait a minute, you know, we, we had an agreement. I mean, we were talking, we, we had an email exchange, um, you know, absent some sort of material reason to make those changes. You do not want to negotiate in bad faith because that will cause people to walk away. And that, that can scuttle a career as well. So you want to be very careful. If you say something, follow through and do it. All right. That sounds um, that sounds uh, like a very good advice for all those who are in, in the M&A business or are planning to do so. Um, how about Bill? You know, so let's say we have an agreement in principle. Yes, so the buyer says, well, it looks good. That's about the price range where uh, we're um, uh, willing to pay for the assets, right? Uh, and it sounds acceptable to the potential seller. Yeah? And then there is a due diligence. Yeah? Sure. How sure. often do you experience due diligence significantly contributing to significant changes in the agreed arrangements? I, I tend to see attempts to change based on things that were allegedly found in, in due diligence. What we tell when we're representing sellers, by the way, we only represent either the buyer or the seller. And I've worked on both sides, but not at, at the same time. I think that's <laughs> ethical to try and put yourself in the middle because you're only going to be able to represent one side's interest. So what we tell the sellers when we sell is due diligence is your friend. So in other words, you are making all kinds of representations. We put the materials together to describe the company, the products, the customers, uh, the employees, the management team, uh, the financials, of course. Financials, of course, are a big, big part of this. All these are representations, right? These are promises. You know, we've we represent the revenue was this and the profit was that, and we represent that we have these sort of customers. Due diligence should be to confirm all of those representations that have made. So as long as the seller has been forthcoming and honest, due diligence should not be any sort of a problem. Now, where we've had problems, uh, years ago, I was working on a transaction and a PE firm was, was buying our client. And the, the client had a a president who had worked his way up on the accounting side. He started as a staff accountant and became president after 25 years. So he's very good with the accounting. And so they, they did a really nice job. This buyer was convinced we were hiding $400,000 of losses by doing some accounting tricks. And I said, well, that doesn't make sense. We have audited numbers. I've looked at them. Uh, the president is really good with accounting. Obviously, that's that was his background. And so we spent a week yelling at each other. It's a senior partner at a big PE firm yelling at each other, hanging up the phone. It's nine o'clock at night. I'm still yelling into the phone. And I kept saying, show me your work, show me your work. And he was, you know, a lot of F-bombs being thrown my way. And, you know, what are you hiding? And so I finally got them to send me the spreadsheet their accounting firm put together as they were analyzing audited numbers that we had. And I looked and sure enough, I found a $400,000 hole. And I thought, oh, my God, has is, is, is my president been, been misleading me or making a mistake? What's going on? And I thought, let me look at this thing. It's called an assumptions tab. And I looked at that assumptions tab. 
And the numbers that the accountants transcribed from the audit were wrong. They grabbed the wrong column or the wrong year. I can't remember. But audited numbers were wrong. I put in the correct audited numbers and everything footed the way that it should. And so there, there was a mistake. And when I pointed that out, magically, all the yelling went away. I never got an apology. I never got acknowledgement. We, we just moved on. We, we closed the deal. But you know, when you, know, you have to, you have to trust the people you're working with. If you do have this, if someone keeps saying we have a problem, well, show me your work. Show me your work. We had another issue, situation a few years ago where uh, the buyer came to us and said that we view the earnings uh, differently, and they had a, a quality of earnings report put together by a uh, accounting firm, a reputable accounting firm, and and they wouldn't share the work. And they finally, I kept asking, they would send me just one page. And I finally got them to send me the spreadsheet that they said they got from the account because I kept asking for that. And I was looking for one thing. I really didn't care about the numbers anymore. I looked at the properties and I wanted to see something. And sure enough, I saw the accounting firm and I saw the person who prepared this. And because one of the guys on my team noticed that uh, different lines in the spreadsheet had different size fonts, different type of fonts, three, four different fonts were being used. And so we suspected that this this buyer was a young, inexperienced team that was pulling some funny games here. And so what I did is I, I looked up the, the kid who put the, the spreadsheet together. I looked up his boss, and then I looked up the boss's boss, which was the guy that was running the whole firm in, in a big city here in Chicago. And I called him, and I introduced myself, and I said, um, you have a client that's trying to buy one of my client's companies. And I just want to know if – you guys typically release information on a spreadsheet and you use three or four different fonts and different sizes. Is that normal? You know, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. I don't know if, if the buyer is doing something. I don't know if your guys made a mistake, but you might want to look into that. I got a phone call an hour later from the buyer, which I then just let go to voicemail and I went home and I did not pick up that message till 11 o'clock the next morning. So I let them stew. And amazingly that dispute ended as well. So you want to use some brains as well. So that was a little bit of, something underhanded I think was going on and we, we sussed it out and that's the way you do it. Yes. That's uh, sounds like a lot of experience speaking, uh, speaking here in our, uh, in our episode, uh, um, Bill in, um, in an M in an M in an M um, easy for you to say. <laughs> <laughs> negotiation, negotiation set up. Yes. We have multiple stakeholders. As yeah. buyers, advisors, lawyers, uh, accountants, uh, and so on and so on. So ultimately, uh, your job boils down to multi-stakeholders, managed stakeholder management slash negotiations. How do you how do you manage all all, all, all this? Yes. How do you manage? How do you make sure that? How do you keep all your balls in the air? Yeah, I'm I'm beholden to one person or one entity, okay. and that is my client. Okay, who's ever paying me, that is who I represent. Okay, so if I'm representing seller, I do not represent buyer. I want to have a good uh, relationship. I want a cordial relationship. And I've had deals where you had a, a cordial, where we had a, a cordial relationship with the buyer. Hey, you know, you're going to have difference of opinion. Say, hey, we need to talk about this. Okay, and you can settle that. Th those are the best. Those, those are the best where you have a cordial relationship. Uh, you ask a good question too. other stakeholders. So employees, for example, the employees of a company are very, very important. But this is where it gets tricky because you don't want to tell the employees that we're going to sell the company because if something happens, maybe the buyer can't get it done. 
And if the deal doesn't happen, the employees start saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, months ago, they told us they're going to sell the business and they haven't sold it. So maybe we have a problem with the business. Maybe I need to dust off my resume and look for another job. So now you've created a problem where you didn't have a problem. That's not to keep people out of the mix, but sometimes people do need to operate on a on a need to know basis. You don't want to inadvertently create a problem uh, where where sometimes issues pop up is when a buyer says, well, we want certain employees to stay. Okay, well, we get it. These are these are important people. But this is where it gets tricky because uh, an employee realizes, wait a minute, if I don't agree to this deal or if I say I'm going to leave, I have a lot of power. So, yeah, I, I, I want my salary and I want a million dollar bonus right now. And I want a, a company car, Rolls Royce, by the way. Um, so you, you have to be you have to be careful in terms of how to uh, present that to people. Uh, if it is something where the employees need to stay uh, maybe you make uh, an introduction right before you close. Okay, we've we've worked through all the due diligence. The purchase agreement is done. Uh, we have a new buyer. We we plan to close on Friday. You know, it's Thursday right now. Uh, here's the buyer they want to meet with you, and they they have a really nice offer they want to put together. That's one way of of handling it. But it, it is it is a tricky and delicate situation dealing with all those stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. How about challenges? We started. I think you started uh, started uh, touched upon cha- main challenges in the in the process with respect. So the number of stakeholders is probably one of them. Yeah? What are some other challenges that you've encountered while negotiating M and A deals? Well, the, the big challenge always is the difference of valuation, and valuation just isn't a static number. Valuation is the terms, uh, the timing of those payments. So it's just not twenty five million euro. For example, it's when do you get that money? What are the terms? What what are the representations and warranties that go along with that? So it it is a much more uh, a complicated uh, a subject. Uh, a lot of times you see a lot of structure these days in in these deals where the buyer will pay. Okay, we'll pay twenty five million dollars for the business, but we want the owner to take some of those proceeds in stock in the new company we're going to form and we want a seller note uh we want an earnout, and so all these things wait a minute i thought it was a 25 million dollar deal i'm walking away with two million dollars on a bunch of paper hold on here what's going on here and sometimes that makes sense i always i always tell people well how, how do you determine what is what is the right deal you can't because you have to look at that on a case-by-case basis so if somebody says I'll give you 10 euro right now, or I'll give you this other deal. I'll give you five euros right now and uh, 10 euros in a year from now. Well, what do you take? Well, maybe taking the 10 right now is the best deal. Maybe taking five now and then getting another 10 in a year, 15 total. Maybe that makes sense. You can't answer uh, with 100% certainty what is right or wrong because it really depends on the situation. Uh, the earnouts, unfortunately, have become something where it, it is a bit of a, a Frankenstein's monster in terms of, of this because people now view this as something that has to be a part of, of a transaction. The the earnout, I'm not a fan of them. It's, it's a, you know, you have to deal with this. That was mainly as you're getting towards the end of the year, Remy, I'm buying your company. You think your earnings are going to be 5 million euros. I think it's only going to be 4 million. Okay, well, we'll close right now. We'll base it on 4 million. And then we'll true up based on the end of the year. So if you hit your 5 million, well, then I'll pay more because the company is worth a lot more. If it only comes in at 4 
4.2. Well, I'm not going to pay you based on five. I'll pay you based on the, the 4.2. And so maybe that's an agreement that you and I have as we're getting near the end of the year. This has taken on a life of its own where now we want to have multiple years. And so we have all these proceeds tied to future performance where the seller is no longer in charge of the business. And maybe that does make sense. But maybe not because you, you no longer have control of the business. And so that's that's something that gets kind of tricky, too. So I, I prefer not to see a substantial earnout uh, when negotiating these transactions. Mm -hmm. Bill, um, so we talked about challenges. Uh, we talked about difficulties, complexity, earnouts, uh, valuations. How about... Um, tactics and strategies that do work some uh, things that you've tested tried and uh, were super happy with the results of those tactics strategies uh, uh, sure. what is your advice what shall what are the do's uh, in negotiating uh, yeah, yeah pound pound on the table and scream at the top of your lungs no you know what what first of all what works uh, anybody who's taking notes right now and watching this, you'll get some good information. And I know your other shows and, and your classes, everything, you have great information. The most important thing for anybody who wants to negotiate is you have to figure out what works for you. Okay. And you can look at other people and other ideas, and maybe get something, but maybe an approach I have works for me, but it doesn't work for someone else. And that other person might have a good approach that they've been very successful with. But if I tried it, it just wouldn't work. It's the personality, the way we speak, whatever. Uh, but beyond that, look, I, I'm big on, uh, on honesty, being forthright, uh, communication, explaining things. Okay. And again, if you have, if you're representing the seller, if you have multiple options, it's a lot easier to go back to a buyer and say, Hey, look, this is what we do in m &A. The client loves you. Everybody loves everybody in m &A. The client loves you. That'd be a great deal. But your offer is a little light. If you can come back to us with a more meaningful offer, we would be very happy to consider that. So that's something you do. Well, what's the number? Well, I'm not going to give you a number. And this is where you get into the communication and being prepared. And people looking to hire investment bankers should ask the, I call this the ask price question. How well are they situated to ask this question? Because if the buyer says, come on, give me a number. I know you guys talk about it. Hamana, hamana, hamana. You know, I don't know what to do. You stall, uh, maybe cough up a number. You better be prepared. And I'll tell you what I say, and other, other people will rip this off. I always tell buyers, they say, Bill, come on, give me a number. What's, what's the number? I know you talk about it with your client. And I say, I'm not going to give you a number. I ask that you take a look at the materials we prepared. Everything that you need to make a fully formed offer is included in those materials. Come back to me with an offer that you can support and close, being mindful that you have competition. That usually seals the deal. Okay. And if it doesn't, come on, Bill, I, I've heard all that stuff. You guys say that, come on, give me the number. What's the number? I say, I'm not going to give you a number. One, if I give you a number and you were willing to pay more, I've just done a disservice to my client. So I'm not going to do it. Two, if I give you a number and you were willing to pay more, then you come back to me and you meet the low ball offer that I gave you and some other group bid higher and they win. I've given you bad advice. I'm not going to do it. That nips it in the butt at that point. Mm-hmm. Any major mistakes that you would uh, that you would point out that you would warn against, uh, especially those who are aspiring to uh, to move into that field, uh, something to avoid at all cost? Yeah, uh, don't lie. okay? Don't guess. And we probably dealt with this. I deal with this all the time, not just in in business, but every walk of life, just dealing with I had the guys out here trying to, to fix my 
my uh, furnace. I've got two furnaces in this house. I had it stalled a few years ago. These guys cannot get it set right. I'm just absolutely sick of this. And I tell them this every time. I, I, if you don't know, just say you don't know. I would rather hear that. Bill, I, we don't know what's going on. Let me do some research. Let me talk to my boss. Let me make a call. Fine. And it's the same thing when you're negotiating. If you don't know the answer, tell the other side, I do not know, but I will find the answer. That is much better than guessing and guessing wrong. Uh, communication is a big part of that. So understand the end game. Negotiating is 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 a lot like uh, playing poker. It's a lot like playing chess. You want to be prepared. So when I go to market, I want to understand the business. I want to understand the pushback from uh, the different buyers. And sometimes as you're doing this, you're going to learn other things too, other issues that are popping up that maybe you didn't see because the buyers are looking at it from a, a different perspective. But I want to be prepared to answer their questions, have that information available. Uh, so that's that chess game where you're, you're looking at the each move. Uh, poker comes into this as well. Uh, it, it, if you don't play chess, if you don't play poker, uh, you do not want to do this kind of work. And here's why. Everybody thinks if they don't play poker, they just think it's just bluffing and poker players are just lie, 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 bluff, bluff, bluff. That is a very naive person who has no experience about this. That's what they think. For me, not that I'm any kind of great poker player and I, I haven't played. I used to play when I was younger with friends just to have fun. But some of those lessons, sitting around, playing cards with friends, you put a little money on. Uh, you should play where if you lose, it stings, by the way, okay? Because what you learn very quickly is how to read not only your hand, but your hand compared to other people as best as you can read it. And that is the A number one negotiating skill. How do I read my hand? And then how do I play the hand? So if you have a weak hand, how do I get out of this as cheaply as possible? If you have a strong hand, and this is probably where people in business make the biggest mistake. They have a strong hand, they're dealt a great hand, and then they overplay it. So if you're playing cards and you're dealt this great hand and you are betting huge numbers, the maximum as, as you can go, what are you going to do? You're signaling to everybody else that you've got a great hand. They are all going to jump out and now you've won the ante. Good job. So you've misplayed a strong hand. Those are the biggest lessons, how to play a weak hand, how to play a strong hand when you're negotiating. Thank you, Bill, for sharing this advice. <clears throat> I was wondering, you know, in um, in the last 30 years uh, of your career M&A, successful M&A, extremely successful M&A career, you probably have observed certain changes. Yes, uh, actually, this is maybe let me formulate this as a question rather than a thesis, right? So uh, um, when you look back and how its story journey started, as how M&A worked, 20, 30 years ago and how it works right now. Do you see any changes? Do you see any major uh, major tendencies, developments that are popping up? Is it seismic or is it minute, uh, minute? Uh, so how would you how would you summarize that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're always going to have, have changes in terminology and, and things like that. I, I wouldn't say anything that is a seismic change. We have this thing called EBITDA, if, you're, if your people know what that is, that's earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization. It was invented by a entrepreneur in America, a billionaire who was in the, the, the cable TV business. John Malone was his name. Apparently, he's the guy who invented it. And, and the idea of EBITDA is to measure a company 
and what the cash flow of the company would be if you take out all these other factors, having to pay taxes, having to make acquisitions, having to uh, borrow money and things like that. If you take out all those things, the interest, the taxes, the, uh, what you have to depreciate when you buy assets, just the business running in a vacuum, basically, what is it going to produce? So that's not actual cash flow for a business, but that was done so you can do an apples to apples comparison of this company to another company. And that, that makes sense. So what we've seen now increasingly is adjusted EBITDA. So I call that a Frankenstein's monster, where what are the adjustments? Well, these are one-time only expenses that go away. Okay. Well, we, we had a, a lawsuit. We had a uh, write a check for $200,000. We never had a lawsuit before and we don't expect that ever again. Okay, maybe we can add that back. Or the owner takes out a million dollars a year. You can hire a new CEO for $300,000. So we'll add back 700000 Okay, maybe that makes sense. But you're seeing a lot, basically the kitchen sink is being tossed in sometimes. And, and what buyers, and if you're a seller, you know, be careful with that, where if you're adding back Thirty, forty thousand dollars every month, but it's different stuff. Oh, it's 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 a one-time only thing, thirty thousand dollars. The next one-time only thing, thirty thousand dollars. Something different. But if every month you have these addbacks, what's a buyer going to say? Wait a minute. It seems like every month we have thirty, forty thousand dollars in expenses. We can't add that back. We we can't adjust earnings because I'm probably going to be experiencing a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of expenses every year. So you want to be careful with that. Uh, quality of earnings reports, that's something that's developed here in the States. I don't know uh, how much you have that over in Europe. Improved or um, deteriorated? Uh, well, no, the, the, it's, a, it's a report, Q of E, quality of earnings. So you have audits, you have reviews. This is another report that an accounting firm, guess what, they want to get some money out of you. But it, it becomes a very good report because the audits and reviews set up this thing called EBITDA, which we discussed. Quality of earnings reports sets up adjustments to the EBITDA. So we have adjusted EBITDA. That's the Frankenstein's monster. Well, if you have an independent accounting firm going through and saying these are the addbacks that are legitimate, um, here's the changes and so forth. Here's how we see earnings post acquisition. If you have an independent firm, accounting firm, coming up with a report, that adds a lot of credence in terms of being able to make that argument with the buyer. Yeah, I know when you look at the books, it has $3 million of earnings, but we have a, a Q of E and you can talk with this accounting firm and look at their work papers, have your accountants talk with their accountants, got to talk about, uh, talk about a boring conversation. That must be accountants talking about accounting with other accountants, Ugh. but you can have your people do that because the, the books say 3 million, we're seeing $4 million. Okay. That will go a long way with a buyer getting comfortable with the earnings are actually going to be higher than what is what we're being able to calculate on the the audits or the reviews. That's been a big change in recent years. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, the, the 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 industry is changing, but the changes uh, are not as huge maybe as um, as in other businesses, right? So it's uh, here and there, new reports, uh, new KPIs, uh, uh, but uh, ultimately we'll, we're selling and buying assets. That's the bottom line. And until somebody comes up with the magic words where you can learn magic words and whisper the magic words into someone's ear and they will say, I know I bid uh, 20 million euros for the business. Now you ma magic words, I'll bid 40 million. Okay. Until that happens, that would be a seismic shift. And I would love to have that ability. Uh, that's never going to happen. But until that happens, never going to happen. 
you're not you're not going to have that sort of a seismic shift in in m a perfect uh, bill you're also an author of a great book on mergers and acquisitions hey, uh, hey, i got it here hey, too yeah look great at book. this yes uh, um and um I would like you to tell us a little bit more about the book. Who is it for? What was the intention behind it? What inspired you to uh, to, 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 to write sure. it? And who should read it above all? Sure, sure. Well, everybody should read it. You should buy 20 or 30 copies every month. Give them out to your friends, your family. It makes makes a great stocking stuffer at the Christmas season coming up. <laughs> um, the, the, the book was... It was and is designed for anybody interested in mergers and acquisitions. So it is part of the official Four Dummies uh, franchise, if you want to call that. That's owned by Wiley Publishing. Uh, people always ask me, how did I get around the copyright? I didn't get around the copyright. People always ask me, did I write the book? Yes, I actually wrote the book. Uh, I did not have a ghostwriter. I did not have one of those AI things write it. So I, for better or for worse, everything in there is 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 written by me. I've had editors and, and, and proofreaders who were, of course, very, very helpful in the process. Uh, but anybody interested in M&A, so if you're a business owner, an executive, and you're thinking about making acquisitions or selling off a piece of your company or selling the whole company, retiring, for example, it becomes a very good resource. So you you don't have to read the book cover to cover. You can if you if you want, but it works as a resource. So you can look up in the index, well, what's a letter of intent? You can turn to that page and you can see the the paragraph or the page or whatever I wrote on, on a letter of intent. So that works very good uh, for that. It, it works well for students who for some reason want to be investment bankers, in which case I'd always have to ask them, why did you fall down a flight of stairs? Why would you want to do this kind of thing? Uh, service providers, lawyers and accountants, wealth managers, commercial bankers, other people in, in professional services who are maybe dealing with M&A or tangentially dealing with M&A want to understand the process and the nomenclature and the terms and things like that. Uh, that can be, be a very, very helpful book. For that as well. Uh, I, I wrote the book because the publisher reached out to me. So they reached out a uh, long time. I wrote a book 20 years ago on venture capital. This is the, the long tale of the internet kids. I was upset about something. So I wrote a little book. I was going to be an article. I didn't know where I was going to put the article, but I wrote it and it kept getting bigger. And I thought, well, I'm going to weave a narration through it. And so I, I did that had some fun with it, but explained a lot of things. I still didn't know what to do with it. So I made a little PDF and I just sent it out, sent it to some websites and people forwarded it. And I was a extremely minor viral hit before that was a term. And I was getting contacted by a lot of people. And I thought if I knew what I was doing, I could do something with it. And, you know, it is what it is. So a few years later, I got into middle market investment banking. Um, I lost a bet. That's that's how I got into this this line of work here, and uh, I've been doing it for a few years. And Wiley was looking for somebody to write a book on leveraged buyouts, LBOs for dummies. And I thought, yeah, I'll do it. And then I thought about it. Well, that's just a form of acquisition, a way to finance these things. And I said, who would buy LBOs for dummies? And, and Wiley said, well, those those guys on wall street who do those billion dollar deals. And I said, well, there's about six of those guys and I'm not going to teach them anything. And I thought, how about M and a for dummies who would buy that book bill? That's stupid. And I said, I don't know, business owners, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, much bigger market, stupid idea. So they called back to so that ended two years later in 2010, they called up and said, we have a new idea. We thought of it, not you. 
MA for dummies. Are you interested in writing? And I said, Oh my God, you guys are geniuses. How do you come up with that? Well, we're in Hoboken, New Jersey. You're not. We think of this kind of stuff. So uh, that that's how it came together. I'm joking a little bit. I'm very appreciative of of, of Wiley. Um, I think what happened is because Wiley has to come up with new titles uh, for this franchise. And it's, it's a great franchise. There's a lot of great books in this, but they've got thousands of books. And so I think what happens is I was at the intersection of publisher desperation and having some information. Because I think the meeting went, well, we're striking out. We don't have any ideas we haven't used yet. Someone said, well, go through the reject pile and pick the least worst idea. And so I think <laughs> that's how I got that's how I got the deal to, to write the book in 2010. It came out in 11. And then last year in 22 they contacted me let's do an update so i worked on that last fall and then the the new edition came out uh a couple months ago uh in late may of this year and i've already started reading the chapter obviously on guess what oh look at that oh that is the most brilliant stuff in there you'll see if you read that you'll see uh ho hopefully i'm consistent here but you'll see my thoughts on on using poker and, and chess and you know do not draw a line in the sand and all this kind of stuff yes i already i can already relate to the content i've already uh, i've already read um um one more uh, one more question to the book and to your experience uh, spontaneously uh, um have you ever encountered a um, a negotiation expert at a, a in a in a mna negotiation which who was paid exactly to make sure that deal terms are reached as desired or have it has it has this activity been a part of uh, the MA advisory uh, package? Uh, have, having a independent arbiter who sits between the buyer and seller, no. not necessarily independent. It can be very much partial, hired by one of the parties, but who only deals with negotiation strategy. Uh, well, not so much with negotiating strategy. That that's my job as the investment banker, whether I'm representing the buyer or the seller. And I've bought companies and I've sold companies. Uh, lawyers obviously are a huge part of that too. When you get into negotiating uh, the the purchase agreement, which is going to be based on all the terms and so forth that the investment bankers have hashed out, the lawyers uh, work on all the, all the legal things as well. Uh, that my that's my job. If I'm representing the seller, if I'm representing the buyer. I am the final arbiter, and I, I will, we want to be fair to the other side, of course, but my job, if I'm representing the seller, is to uh, agitate for the seller's uh, benefit. If I'm representing the buyer, it's the same thing. But part of my job is to say, look, I want to get the best deal for you as possible, of course. It impacts my fee. I want to make more money. But if we do this... I think the other side is going to walk away or here's the pushback they're going to have. Uh, or, you know, if we do that, we're negotiating in bad faith. I do not recommend that we do this. This would be a bad, uh, an absolutely bad thing to do. This would be a mistake. So, so a big part of that is going to be on the advisors uh, that are helping out on a, on a transaction in terms of that uh, arbiter, if you will. So again, we want to be fair to the other side. We do not represent the other side. We represent one side only, but we have to be mindful of of how things might be taken on the other side. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So um, to our listeners and viewers, Mergers and Acquisitions for Dummies, uh, written by Bill Snow, uh, warm recommendation. Uh, guys, have a look at it if you want to find out more about uh, about um, uh, how, a how an M&A process uh, looks like, how to negotiate, how to prepare it, how to... Uh, how to uh, 
close it uh, and how to negotiate it uh, along the way that's uh, the first that's the first book you guys should uh, grab uh, yeah. my last question bill is always about greatness and negotiation yeah, yeah. Uh, so in your in your practice uh, maybe from your history lessons uh, from your observation of politics and diplomacy when we talk about greatness who pop in negotiation who pops uh, pops up in your mind Oh, I've been dreading this question since you gave me the little cheat sheet ahead of time. Uh, I don't have anybody that that comes to mind when it comes to negotiating. I mean, there's plenty of great uh, people out there, uh, plenty of great negotiators who've made mistakes as well. So it's kind of hard to say that. The lesson there, if people want to get into negotiating, the farther that you advance in business, you'll you'll have to negotiate uh, more and more, both for yourself and maybe for for clients, is figure out what works for you. And I get contacted a lot having done writing and, and speaking and you know, a lot of people connect on, connect with me through LinkedIn, which is great. But I can always tell that a lot of times people are looking to take notes, you know, point by point, what's point one, what's point two, whether it's a career advancement or how to do this, how to do that, how to negotiate. And I always caution people, be careful with that. I mean, there's a few lessons and we've talked about that here today. You want to be open. You want to be honest. You don't want to negotiate in bad faith. Uh, you, you want to avoid salesy things. You want to avoid gimmicks. I just replaced all the windows in my house. And uh, I'm very, very happy with the firm I hired. The owner came out. I negotiated a deal with him. He did it the way that I wanted. Okay. He showed up. We shook hands. He asked a couple questions. I told him what I wanted to do. He talked about a couple options. And we hammered out the deal right then and there. He sent me a contract. We worked that out real quick. I sent him a check and they installed everything it was great. I had to kick somebody out before I hired that guy. And the guy showed up and he was salesy and gimmicky and he was overly familiar with me. And, and that, that was a big turnoff for me as well. Now, that's just me. I don't I, I, I want to get down to business. I mean, I want to be polite and helpful, of course. But he shows up. What are we doing here today? What do you think we're doing? I called you to, to do the windows. I mean, I thought he was going to start taking some measurements, asking a couple questions and, uh, you know, maybe show me a couple options. And then he's gone. It was an hour. I couldn't get the guy to leave. It was gimmicky. It was a complete turnoff. So for me, that kind of stuff doesn't work. And I think that's true for most people. So when you're negotiating, Negotiating, learn. The best way to do it is to do it and to learn. Do not lie. Do not draw lines in the sand and do not bluff unless you want somebody to call that bluff. That'd be my, my hopefully expert tips on how to negotiate. Wow, Bill. Thank you so much for um, for your tips, for your recommendations. Thank you so much for introducing your book, Mergers and Acquisitions for Dummies. Oh, great uh, guys, book. Uh, um, uh, you can purchase it on uh, on Amazon. I will add a link uh, in the description. You are um, uh, kindly invited also to connect with Bill. He accepts uh, invitations on LinkedIn, as as he uh, as he already mentioned. Bill, thank you so much for a wealth of your for sharing your experience with us. Uh, and until the next time on the podcast on negotiation, thank you so much. Thank you. This was a great time. Loved it. Thank you.